It is with a great deal of thankfulness and gratitude, I'm sure, that we each assemble and gather together this morning. We do so in the appreciation of all the goodness that God has bestowed upon us, the opportunity that's ours to gather on the first day of the week and offer the worship as He has commanded unto Him. As was mentioned earlier, we certainly are excited about the enjoyment we, that we did participate in yesterday and thankful for each and every individual who had a part in it and making that what it was. But as we come together this morning on this first day of the week to do, in fact, that which is our heart's desire and offer worship unto God, may I begin with at least a brief announcement relative to an additional gospel meeting in the area and then proceed in, into our lesson shortly thereafter. Beginning next Lord's Day morning, the Heron's Chapel Church of Christ, just over off uh, exit 276 off I-40, will be beginning a series of gospel meetings Sunday through Wednesday of that week. And I'll be the one holding the, the lessons, the sermons in that service. And so our elders have taken care. Others will be taking care of matters here. And always so thankful for, for those men who do that. But I would ask that you pray for our meeting at Heron's Chapel. Uh, keep that in, in prayer if you would and so that... Your kind thoughts, and if it all come, be with us. Hopefully a matter of great encouragement to that congregation. Except is absolute. That particular title drawn from the perspective of that text that was read a moment ago, I invite you to turn back to that location of Luke 13. And as we give some thought to the presentation of that, here are some additional matters preparatory to begin us in our consideration of that particular subject. We at this point through the Bible here at Pippin this year are continuing our reading process. 332 chapters now complete and that brings us to almost 28% of the fullness of the Word of God. This lesson this morning being taken from Luke, tonight's lesson from Judges. May I invite you if at all you can to come back and be with us as we cast the spotlight on some incredibly interesting features found in that Old Testament book of Judges later this afternoon. When you and I give thought to the Word of God, Brother Glenn just led us in some songs in which we lifted high the banner and the consideration of God's Word. Whate'er you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. The very wording of Colossians 3 verse 17. The matter and consideration attached to the bountifulness and truthfulness and the absoluteness of this Word of God. You'll notice you and I are told that every word of God is tried, meaning it's pure, meaning that it does fulfill the need for which it has been offered and presented. That text of Proverbs chapter 30 reminds us of that truth so clearly. We're reminded in the very last paragraph of the Bible in Revelation 22, not one thing about it should we add anything to it or take anything from it. You'll notice among the other matters on that particular list, we find that in the matter of the Word of God that there are certain things the God of heaven through the Spirit has presented and these carry the weight of an absoluteness. They carry a directness. You and I today notice that this being Easter Sunday, if you please, some of those absolute considerations will appear even during a part of our lesson this morning. When we begin, though, might we do so like this? The word except, E-X-C-E-P-T, is a critical matter of the very text that we had read in our hearing earlier. Let me invite you to give thought to the usages, some of the usages of that word. The word except, it occurs 74 times in the King James Version of the Bible. 
And of those 74 occurrences, well over half of them are in the New Testament. This word except then on those matters and on those verses in which it occurs often is surrounded by a very strong element. So strong that I thought it would do us good to reflect upon some of them and then consider the nature again of the text before us. This word except, it typically carries with it the thought of it links together some matter that's presented and does so by stating it as an absolute condition. Look at some of these examples. In Matthew 18, verse number 3, as Jesus Himself was in the midst of listening to His own disciples, arguing about who should be the greatest in the kingdom, He took a little child, set that child in the midst of them and said, Except ye be converted and become as this little child, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That word except was the very critical matter that the Lord used to begin that presentation. And you'll notice again, He made the powerful statement that this was a strong condition. If you, my disciples, do not humble yourselves and become even as this little child in spirit, then you will not accept and enter into the glorious abode of that kingdom. Notice a second example from John 3 verse 2. Here even Nicodemus understood the thoroughness of that word. As he came to Jesus by night, wasn't he quick to say, as he made observation of the signs and the things that Jesus did, no man can do these things that thou doest except God be with him. Nicodemus well appreciated the fact that nobody by his own volition, could do these miracles, carry out the thoroughness and the power of this teaching, unless God were with him. Here we find again in this interesting scene, this word accept appears and does so easily understandable to us. That third example from John 19, our Lord was speaking here. He was in the very shadow of the cross, basically. And in so doing, he to Pilate said that except God give you power, you would have none. That is the power to legislate, the power of civil government. Jesus on that occasion affirmed that God was the ultimate author of that power. And again, he used that word except as a matter in teaching that truth. In the fourth instance, you'll notice in John 20 verse 25, Thomas, that one you and I know of as the doubter, wasn't he who said, except I put my hands into the nail prints and into his side, I will not believe. He again affirmed, unless I am able with directness to touch, if you please, the very matter, I shall not believe. And except was used again, wasn't it? It was used, of course, with thoroughness and with a great deal of exclusiveness. In the next instance, you can see in Acts 27, 31, the Apostle Paul made a tremendous statement. It was the scene of a shipwreck, or at least a ship in the throes of a strong storm. In the midst of that terrible, tumultuous storm, Paul said, Except they stay in the ship, they shall not be saved. You might remember that there was at least a thought, well, why don't we jump overboard, or at least why not put the little vessels in and try to make sure somewhere? And much to the disagreement of the supposed expert sailors, Paul said, unless you stay in the boat, the ship, you'll not be saved. You and I remember that they did stay in the ship and all 276 of them survived. 
Another example coming from 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 3. Paul said that second coming of Christ would not come except the man of sin come first. The man of sin, Paul said, is a surety to come and it shall do so before the second coming of Christ. That man of sin has long since now come. All of these are building a strong appreciation, aren't they? This word except when it appears often carries with it a strong element of thrust and force. Maybe one or two additional ones. 2 Timothy 2 verse 5, Paul used the word again in his inspired writing about striving lawfully. Except a man strive lawfully, he shall not receive the prize. You and I know well that when an athlete performs in, say, a race, if he cuts a corner and doesn't run the full marathon but yet crosses the finish line first, well, he didn't strive lawfully. He won't receive the prize. He won't receive the blue ribbon, if you please. You and I notice Paul said it's important, in fact, necessary to strive lawfully. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, our Lord used this word at another location in John chapter 6. In verses 53 and following Jesus, on one occasion in reference to His own body and blood, He said, "'Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you.'" Now that statement was a hard statement for those of that day. To eat His flesh, to drink His blood, and yet He meant that if one does not fully imbibe within himself all that the Lord has taught and all that Jesus has set forth, then he, in fact, is not a devout follower, and he is not one who, in fact, has the full blessing of God. As you and I have thought about these occurrences of this word except, it is interesting to give thought to especially this particular Sunday, and might I ask that we do so in light of the statement that occurs on this next slide. You see, this word that's translated except, E-X-C-E-P-T, is also in other particular verses translated with the word but. And so in Greek, there is an association of, a correspondence, if you will, between those two. And please look at Luke 24, verse 6 with me. You recall the scene. It was an overwhelming one. Our Lord had been crucified. We notice, though, that Sunday morning had arrived. The women come to the tomb, and they find that an earthquake had rolled the stone away, and there was an angelic visitor who entered into conversation with them. This angelic visitor, of course, made reference, and I quote to statements like this one. He, speaking of Christ, is not here, but is risen. Where that word but? It's that same word that has relation to this consideration of accept. He's risen. Those women had come to the tomb early that morning. They, to much surprise, had found the stone already rolled away. They, you may remember, were discussing on the way, how are we going to have the stone moved? Pilate had allowed the Jews to set a watch upon it. We noticed that, however, they found, much to their delightful surprise, he is risen. That became a central feature preached and taught and asserted and proclaimed all throughout the remainder of the New Testament. In Acts 2 verse 24 on that day of Pentecost when Peter in boldness stood up and asserted, he taught, did he not, about the character associated with the features of the resurrection of Jesus. That resurrection 
You may remember Paul stated it, or rather Peter, in words like these. It was a matter touching the very feature. He had died, that is to say Christ, he'd been crucified. Not only that, in that crucifixion, you may remember he had been buried, the body had been, but then, but then, the statement was made that God raised him up. He was raised. Today, the world, by and large, celebrates that raising of Jesus, the resurrection. And in that celebration, they, of course, do so remembering the very feature of these gospel accounts. He is risen. It is a matter to be reflected upon and kept thoroughly in mind, not just once a year, of course, because we find it is a central feature, in fact, of the Christian life. So central that Paul could refer to it like this. We notice in 1 Corinthians... The 15th chapter is often recognized as the resurrection chapter of the Bible. And in that statement, beginning in verse number 12, Paul could affirm the following things. If there is no resurrection, then that means Christ wasn't raised. And if He wasn't raised, then the apostles were false teachers. They were preaching that which was not true. And not only that, namely that they were false teachers, your faith is vain. Those thoughts carry forward, of course, throughout the centuries and still describe so pertinently the situation today. If the Lord wasn't raised, you and I have no reason to be here this morning. If the Lord wasn't raised, our faith is absolutely powerless and empty. If the Lord wasn't raised, we have no reason to have hope in heaven. If the Lord wasn't raised, we have no basis for a plan of salvation. But yet, on the other hand, because He was raised. And you and I know it certainly there is ample testimony within the sacred Word of God to the fact that He was. And there are even references extra-biblically to it. He was raised. And because of that, the apostles were true teachers. Your faith and mine can be genuine and real. And you and I can have the fullness of hope of a home in heaven. That's what the resurrection meant to those of the first century, and it's what the resurrection can still so powerfully keep in mind for you and for me even today. You'll notice as you come near the bottom of that slide, didn't Jesus Himself say in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and the life. What descriptive words the Lord applied to Himself. We do know He was the first fruits of those that were resurrected, and all of us will one day participate in a resurrection, and surely we long to be a part of the resurrection of the just, John 5, 28 and 9. It is with that thought in mind, the closing features, just to appreciate again the thoroughness with which that thought is described in the New Testament. Even in the book of 1 John, John was so secure and so assured and so certain that the Lord had raised. He said, we saw Him. He was even to comment the fact he was one of those blessed apostles who was in presence with the resurrected Jesus. He was among that number who for that period of 40 days was able to associate with and be a companion of the one who had been raised from the dead. At this point, when we notice again, except is absolute, the Lord was raised. May you and I have not the slightest doubt that that's a true statement. I realize well that there are those individuals in our world, 
scholars, otherwise agnostics or skeptics, and they will cast a somewhat inquisitive cloud over the resurrection as if they can explain it away by some natural occurrence. It was no such thing. That tomb was empty that Sunday morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, a whole host of witnesses are listed who in fact gave thought to and actually had conversation with or saw the resurrected Jesus. Given that Jesus was raised and that that is a central feature of this Christianity that you and I hold so dear, let us then revisit our text in Luke chapter 13, verses 3, 4, and 5. Brother John read for us earlier from verse number 3. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The context is there were some individuals who had made a comment to Jesus. In verse number 1 and 2, it begins like this. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. To these Jews and to these other individuals that were there, that was a virtually unspeakably horrible thing. Here was a Roman leader, Pilate. He had the nerve and the audacity to do something like this. There were some Galileans, the text says, who were involved in a particular element in sacrifice. Pilate gave authority for the following. Their blood, the blood of those very Galilean people, was such that their own blood, apparently they were, they were taken and killed, and their blood was mingled with the very sacrifices that they were intending to offer. As these individuals made mention of that to Jesus, I'm sure they were very interested in what the Lord would say about Pilate and about those poor people who had suffered this terrible injustice. Did you notice that in verse number 2 it says, Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye these Galileans were sinners above all the sinner, above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? Jesus, as you and I know, could read their mind. He knew what they were thinking. They were under the impression because of this terrible atrocity that had occurred to the Galileans, well, they must have done something horrible. They in some way offended the God of heaven and this was His judgment upon them. They were killed and their blood sprinkled with these sacrifices or mingled with it. You'll notice verse 3, Jesus very abruptly says, I tell you, nay. It wasn't the case they were more wicked, more evil than these other Galileans. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Again, being able to read their minds, these individuals who had asked Jesus of this, they were thinking that they were in no need of repentance. Those poor Galileans, they'd done something offensive to God, and that was His punishment and judgment upon them. But we... How grand we are and how blessed God is to have us as His servants. That thought may well have crossed their mind, at least indirectly, and yet Jesus absolutely quashed any such thinking. To them He said, I'm telling you, except you repent. That included them. Except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. These words of that resurrected Lord that echo throughout the remainder of the New Testament are still demanding of repentance on the part of each of us, just as it was of them. So often that particular thought finds itself presented powerfully in the New Testament record. I would invite your attention to about the middle part of that slide. As Jesus' answer was absolute, 
He affirmed, first of all, their belief, their preconceived idea was wrong about those Galileans being greater sinners. And then he said, all must repent. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, didn't Jesus on that, or rather, didn't Paul on that occasion say, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. You notice two things directly related to our lesson today were mentioned. Raised Him from the dead. The very truth of the Lord's resurrection asserts the fact that all men everywhere must repent. That includes you and me. That subject of repentance is highlighted in several examples. The Jews, Acts chapter 2 verse 38, Acts chapter 3 verse 19, the Jews were told to repent. You'll notice furthermore, those in Samaria, Acts 8.22, they were told to repent. You and I will remember, perhaps one final thought, the Gentiles. You see, this matter of repentance is an absolute thing. As we noted earlier, accept is absolute. If a person isn't willing to repent, that person cannot stand acceptably and profitably before the God of heaven. As you and I contemplate our own humbleness of mind or lack thereof before God, have we appropriately repented? And are we living a life respective of the repentance that should be descriptive of it? You'll notice that accept is absolute. We noted this particular passage earlier, but let's give a considered thought to it again if we might. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, it was on this occasion a very overcoming presentation. As we noted previously, the disciples amongst themselves were concerned about which one of them should be the greatest. It still is true that frequently mankind desires name recognition. He desires to be lifted to an element of stature amongst a group. That was also characteristic of some of these disciples. They were interested, you see, in this recognition, the being the greatest, if you will. And this was by no means the only time the, the New Testament record informs us that they had these ideas in mind. May I ask you to consider quickly the fact that the Lord didn't give a thunderous lesson by words as much as He did by an absolute picturesque example. He took a little child, put it in the midst of them, and didn't really need to say much more. He said, except you become as this little child, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom. Now that little child, what would be characteristic of that child that was exactly the opposite of what they had been arguing about? The characteristic of humble service, the characteristic of divesting oneself of personal glory and pride, the characteristic of simply wishing to be approved in the sight of another, Sometimes that's very descriptive of a young child, isn't it? Sometimes a child will do almost anything to make mom or dad happy because they think that's what dad or mom is pleased with and they'll do nearly anything. Sometimes, again, presented with a consideration, they'll often divest themselves of so much, at least in many circumstances, to be again found in a proper consideration with respect to what somebody else wants. You and I call it peer pressure. 
Now, sometimes, admittedly, that's not a good thing. But the very thought of wishing to please another, Jesus said, this little child might want to be in such a condition, and another might want to please our Heavenly Father. But yet these disciples want to please themselves. Look at what this thought develops. With that kind of pridefulness and that kind of haughtiness, one isn't terribly interested in the Word of God because it plagues too many demands. It doesn't let me do what I'd like to do or to pursue what I'd like to pursue. These disciples, you see, were later given a full example of one who was by far the greatest of all, and yet he went to a cross. And he endured the scourging and the beating that prefaced it. And he not only did that in the garden, he in fact endured such great difficulty and anxiousness. And yet he was the king of all. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The very wording of Philippians 2 verse 5 didn't Paul in the Colossian letter, verse chapter 1, verse 27, assert until Christ be formed in you? That formation of Christ brings us to diatrophies and the opposite state of affairs he presented. One who there in that particular location to which John wrote in 3 John, verses 9 and 10, he exalted himself, lifted himself up above the mandate of the church or the elders or otherwise. May I encourage you to think as we close that slide that any individual that exalts himself above the God of heaven and his word is in a very, very dangerous circumstance, isn't he? So dangerous that it reminds us of the very wording of that man of sin in First in Second Thessalonians 2. There it's expressly said that this man of sin... This individual exalted himself above all that is called God. And you remember the fateful end to that one? It is with those thoughts in mind that we have looked so far at these usages of the word accept have been very rigid, have been very powerful. As we've looked at each of them, may we be quick to say that there have been so far no exceptions to the accept. With that in mind, let's close our lesson with another consideration of the very wording of this usage except. As our Savior uttered Himself in response to questions asked of Him, they asked Him questions about the consideration of a family and the, na and the nature of what was attached concerning the subject that you and I would recognize as, as, as remarriage, divorce, and that which might well follow. As our Lord made those statements, he found himself in an interesting consideration because, you see, they ask what was no doubt to them a great dilemma. A dilemma they, they felt sure for which there was no good answer. They ask, can a man divorce his wife for every cause? And almost surely there were two tremendous schools of thought of that day and time, and Jesus, rather than siding directly by calling the names of one or the other, he simply asked, have you never read? He pointed them back to that very thing of which we've sung today, that Word of God, the nature of its absoluteness and the rigidity of it. And then in the verses that follow, He set forth what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, verse 6. And then He brings us to consider the very thought of verse number 9. In some ways, a summary, a concluding thought, that particular passage it brings us to appreciate the following. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except 
it be for fornication, shall marry another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away doth commit adultery. And we notice our Lord used that word except. Except it be for fornication. And in so highlighting, He brings to bear and puts before us those thoughts that remind us of these other matters that we have studied. The firmness, the rigidness, and the unaccepted nature of the usage of that word except. That development may lead us to notice these particular comments. We understand so well that that particular feature and facet is one that touches, of course, the lives of individuals today. We understand the beauty of marriage and the power that attaches to it. And we understand the marvelous promise that associates to it so often in the Word of God. That goodness so often seen, perhaps in words like this, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, to quote the very reading of Proverbs 18. But in light of that, we notice our Heavenly Father, of course, through the embodiment of the Son, presented statements that ring powerfully and loudly with respect to except. Suppose an individual then in marriage, the time comes that that's terminated. It's done so by one party for reasons un that are not involved with fornication in any way. We notice that except statement has then been violated. We notice then the thing that follows are the statements that are before us. Whosoever putteth away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another. The Lord said that person guilty of adultery. And not only that, the one that marries him or her guilty of the same. As Jesus made that statement, it sounds so harsh. And it sounds so unaccepted, doesn't it? Thorough and firm, and yet... As Jesus made that statement, He did it for the well-being of those that were His audience on that occasion and for the well-being, of course, of all of humanity throughout the ages since. That well-being might be highlighted in words that follow near the bottom of that slide. We notice that the Lord used a very carefully selected term in description of this matter. It was the term adultery, wasn't it? We know that adultery is characteristic of that particular feature in which someone who's already married but, again, plays around on his or her spouse. Fornication, if you will, with, with another married person. Jesus said this person, this individual, in this consideration, guilty of adultery. Why? Because he's still married to the first wife. He's already a married person or she is already a married person as we give thought to that matter, isn't it interesting that Jesus again used that word except? And He did so in ways that bring us near the bottom of that slide. Closing that thought, we've seen except as it related to humility in Matthew chapter 18. We've seen it as it related to repentance in Luke 13. We've seen it in a host of other applications earlier in the lesson. Every word of God is tried and pure and true, and every word of God carries the thorough weight and meaning that shall be born before us in judgment. In John 12, 48, Jesus made this statement to those assembled on that occasion. He said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. How thankful we can be to know already that this is the book that will judge us. And if we live faithful to it now, we can rest assured all shall be well on that day of judgment. But if we live foolishly rebelling against it now, 
making choices of rebellion against that which God has asserted now, may we recognize that that resurrection of Christ, that matter that we've highlighted earlier in the lesson, that resurrection will not have a great value of meaning for us that day other than to condemn us. For remember, just as surely as He was raised, we shall be judged. Acts 17.30 This very morning, as we think about accept is absolute, these closing thoughts will finish the lesson and do so, bringing us to mind of the major ideas that we have seen. Accept is used in the Word of God as a statement of condition, and it carries with it a tremendous weight, and it certainly should bring us serious reflection and consideration. In addition to that, you'll notice one last thought. As far as we have been able to detect in all, every example we've seen, there have been no exceptions to the exceptions. May we in heavenly pleasing give thought to that which God has taught. It might be today as we think about our lives, reflecting upon them, the crucifixion, the following resurrection that is so often a part of the thinking of men on this particular day. Aren't we blessed to be able to gather in the name of the God of heaven and to do so for the express purpose of offering acceptable worship to Him? I hope we've each been recharged relative to the state of affairs of the book of God today, recharged concerning the resurrection and all that it means. No exception to the exception. The, bullet, the article in the bulletin speaks today about, in many ways, that necessity of baptism. It could be there's someone in this audience today who would be in that position in life. If we could be of assistance to you to make the statement of your faith, the observation of your confession and baptism, we'd be delighted to help you. If you need to return to your first love, coming back to the side of the one that died for you and was raised, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. Today, if we could be of help to any individual as we continue to celebrate in matter of worship, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?